And now, our feature presentation. I like it spooky. Hey everybody, welcome to I Like It Spooky Horror Podcast. I'm Brian. I am Clint, and I just have two words for you. Happy Halloween. I was waiting for you to say, like, suck it or something like that. I was like, what's it going to say? Well, I mean, maybe if you get, you know, some dum-dums in your candy pail there. You think people still dress up as, like, what it, What was it, Did Generation X? You think people still do that? No, I've seen, well, okay, remember a couple of years ago at Flashback, which I know isn't trick-or-treating, but remember the kid was dressed up as Randy Macho Man Savage handing out the Slim Jims? And I can't remember specifically, but I do remember last Halloween, there was a, a wrestling kid. Maybe it was Hulk Hogan or something. I can't remember. So, yeah, you still see him. Wrestling's still big enough for people. People do that stuff, you know? I'd have to be like King Kong Bundy or something like that. Somebody with a big gut. You put like an army hat on, you kind of look like Sergeant Slaughter a little bit there. Maggot. <laughs> Puke. <laughs> wow. Oh, God. Oh, wow. This is one of those intros that leaves me no segue to the news. So hard cut, news flash. So my news uh, this episode is about Never Hike Alone 2. So it's already streaming. It's been streaming for a couple weeks now, and it premiered at Halloween Palooza in Ottumwa. It was there Friday night with Tom Matthews, and it premiered Saturday night. So I wasn't able to see it because I was at the Orpheum in Galesburg, Illinois, watching the Severin Films premiere of Strange Behavior in Galesburg, Illinois. It's never been shown there. Well, it has now. Thanks to I Like a Spooky Horror Podcast. Severn Films and Bootleg is Fuck Toys. And had some friends come from Michigan. Had people come from Peoria and the Quad Cities. And sounds like we're going to be doing something again. They seemed excited. They seemed happy. Everybody had a great time. People were laughing and clapping. And I had a blast. Did you have fun? I did have fun. I was tired. But I did have fun, and um, I kind of did a disservice. You know, I snapped a picture of the crowd before Next to Kin, which was the first movie that showed. Um, and so a lot of people were still outside, you know, coming in. So the, the picture... Uh, made it look like there weren't that many people there, but there was actually, well, there was well over a hundred people. So it was just about half the theater, which I think is amazing for two off the beaten path films like that. It was a great night, a lot of support. So kudos to you guys for, for doing all that you did to put it on. Now you can go support Womp Stomp Films and catch Never Hike Alone 2. So it's a Friday 13th fan film. It's got Tom Matthews in it, who's, you know, franchise hero Tommy Jarvis. I'm sure it's got a shit ton of downloads already, but, you know, it's the sequel to Never Hike Alone, Never Like Alone in the Snow. I need to watch it still. I've been busy with Halloween Palooza and all this other stuff. I mean, have you seen any of the other ones, Clint? So I've seen all the, the I've seen so many fan films, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I've seen all the Never Hike Alones. I haven't seen two yet, because like you, just haven't had any time. There's just so much going on. And then um, I know it's already happened uh, on Friday the 13th. I went to Redford Theater with Boots and watched uh, Claudio Simonetti's Goblin perform live to demons and then they did their best hit, you know greatest hits came home went right to bed got up drove to galesburg there for strange behavior and, and next to ken came home and trying to get the house in order so i haven't had time there was um also on friday the 13th 
another fan film, Friday the 13th Awakening, which I know a little bit about. I've read a few posts, but I think it was supposed to be kind of like a Jason versus Ash Williams thing. I could be wrong, but that's out there now too. And speaking of fan films, again, by the time you hear this, it's already come out, but October 23rd, the Halloween 3 fan film, The Third Channel, which I've been following. I never did support other than some shares and stuff, but it's had my interest. It's finally going to release. And then I just saw there's another Halloween fan film um, that's out now, and it's supposed to be the story centers on where was Michael Myers during Halloween 3. So it's kind of an interesting concept. But yeah, I just need some time, and I'm not going to have time for probably another month to really sit down and take this stuff in. Idle hands of the devil's play things. I don't know if you noticed, I got this trend lately where I haven't really been covering news stories, and I think it's because I do it so often on Spill the Guts. But I've been picking stories that are more discussions. So this isn't really a, a an article. I found this on Dread Central. It's more of a link to Developmental Hell, which is a podcast on the Dread Podcast Network, and it's dedicated to unearthing canceled horror productions to find out what went wrong and decide if they still stand a shot at a green light. They recently covered Halloween 666, the origins of Michael Myers, that in their description had it all, virtual reality, ancient druid curses, and portals to different dimensions. So maybe some more diehard Halloween fans know about this and know about the story of Halloween 666. All I know is on my VHS copy of The Crow, there is a trailer, you know, coming attraction for Halloween 666, and it's called The Origins of Michael Myers. Uh, so I haven't listened to this podcast yet, but I am going to share a link on the I Like a Spooky Horror Podcast Facebook page in case anybody's interested. I'm going to be heading to Kentucky to Scarefest here in uh, three, four days, and I plan on listening to it then because I'm interested in what happened because it sounds like a whole lot of crazy shit going on portals to different dimensions mm, that sounds like more fun than part six that we got well i was gonna say you know it ultimately became the movie that we're going to be discussing today which is halloween six the curse of michael myers so i really want to listen to it even more now to find out what happened from then to what we got and what i watched the other night We'll talk about which version we watched when we talk about the movie. Because you know there's two versions. There is two versions, and I've always seen the one. And then I watched the other one, and I'm curious what one you watched. It amazes me, though, because there's so much money wrapped up in these projects to just scrap them and start over and then put out two cuts of the other one. And then to have it be financially successful, but everybody hate it, it makes me, of course, think about money. So I'm poor, but not too poor, because our friends from Severn Films gave me a movie, Tales to Keep You Awake, the legendary Spanish anthology series. In Vegas, you know, I just got back from Vegas a couple, you know, like three weeks ago. I'm a Patreon supporter, so they have somebody that's taken over helping Darcy get everybody's Patreon stuff. It just became a huge undertaking, so they've kind of asked somebody to step in and help her get that out. So I picked up the second, the last, the lost drive-in, and this is Horror Host Month is what he talks about a lot on this one. And I'm still missing the first one, so they're going to mail that to me. That's a good problem to have, her, her undertaking that and having it take off like that. Pick this up for two bucks. Seen a drive this past weekend. I got to go to one day. It's the French-Canadian version 
of Saw 5. It was $2. I was like, what the fuck? I mean, it's Saw 5. I could, I didn't know what it was, and I had to look it up, because I was like, what does that say? I knew it was a Saw movie. I just didn't know which one. Well, what do you mean French-Canadian version? So is it the same film, or is it like a remake? No, it's it's the same film, I gather, but it's in French. You know, because part of Canada, they speak French. So, yeah, you can't read it. I don't know what any of this says. I just saw the front, and I was like, this has to be a Saw movie. Brian Clark would probably like that. It sells for like 25 bucks on eBay. This was also $2. Overlord, I own it, but for 2 bucks, I was like, I'll gift it to somebody. It's a fucking great movie. It's so great that we covered it here on the I Like a Spooky Horror podcast, and now it's an instant classic. I got Yuki Nakamura's autograph. It's one of the autographs I got. I got him twice. I got him on my uh, letter poster and then on a, what, 8x10, 8x12. I figured I'd gift that to somebody. Darcy looked like she was dressed up as American Mary on there. Yeah, I think that's from one of the episodes. I got a Jamboree poster. That's pretty cool. It looks like old school cowboy Vegas art stuff. So this is not autographed. I did not get to see Joe, Bob, or Darcy all weekend. They were busting their asses, recording the show. You know, they had bands. They had a walking tour of downtown Vegas. And by the time, you know, the show was over Saturday night, the power had went out in the generators. And they were nice enough that if you waited in line, they said, either write your number down and we'll text you tomorrow to get your autograph. Or if you're not going to be here tomorrow, let us know what you bought, and we will mail you an autographed copy of it eventually. So I wrote my name and address down, and they're supposed to be mailing me an autographed copy of that poster, so I would probably hang that up in Finley's room. Or if, uh, I mean, I went with a friend. If he didn't grab a copy, I'd probably give it to him, you know, just pass it on to somebody that wants it. And then this is the last thing I picked up at Scenic Drive. Clash of the Titans! On vinyl, the soundtrack. That's got to be all orchestrated music. Conducting London Symphony Orchestra. And then this one, too. The Cat People. I think it's called Cat People. Fuck, I don't know. It's got David Bowie in it. It's weird. But I had this in my hand, and the guy was like, yeah, if you find another record that's like around eight, ten bucks, I'll do both for 20. We were talking on the phone the other day. I think it was yesterday. And you were telling me about that. And I told you, I was like, yeah, I was like, I, I saw Cat People at the Fox Theater. My grandparents took me when I was little. Yeah, I was I was wrong. I always screw up little details like that. It wasn't Cat People. It was cats. <laughs> yeah. You were like, they said I needed some... Culture. Culture, yeah. I was like, I don't think they took you to see this movie. Because <laughs> if I remember right, which I've never seen it, but I've kind of you know read about it and Tiffany's mom was with us. She's like, yeah, that's weird. The people are like having sex and like turning into cats and stuff. I was like, oh, I don't think that's the same culture that was going on at Clint's grandparents took him to the theater. <laughs> no, they knew what I was watching in their basement on the weekends when I had to come over and stay, which was probably cat people. And they're like, oh, we need to take them to see something else. Let's go to cats. I spent like 60 bucks in Vegas at the convention. I got one autograph and the poster. Um, John Brennan didn't charge me. Yuki wasn't going to charge me, but I was like, do you charge? And he said, no, because he was signing my item. And I was like, you look hot. You need like a slushy or something. He said, I'll sign this for 20, that eight by 10. I was like, oh yeah. And then you can buy yourself a slushy or something. I went to Halloween Palooza. I bought two movies. I bought a movie called Pulse and then Roadhouse from a Shout Factory Select. It was $5. And then I got Tom Matthews' autograph on a print that I have from Jeremiah Lambert, who's a local artist. He lives in Peoria. Forgot to fucking get a picture because we were talking about artwork and other posters, and I was showing him some other prints. And then we started talking about Final Summer with John Iceberg, and he's like, oh, John's great. He's got more energy than most people I know. I was like, yeah, we... 
we talked to him on the podcast. We interviewed him, and he's just bouncing around in the basement. Look at this. 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 He's like, uh, but he said he's going to be in part two and he's going to have a bigger role in part two because he was, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Final Summer, cover your ears. Tom Matthews is in the end of it and, you know, he's going to be more in the second one. We got to talking and I forgot to get a fucking picture. He signed my thing and then I went back to my table. Well, I'm surprised you didn't take anything Return of the Living Dead for him to sign. Or do you already have his autograph on? I have it on my poster, but that's what it is. It's a print of Freddy from Midwest Monster Fest that Jeremiah Lambert did the year he was there. I just, I had the print framed and I was like, oh, that's something I can take for him to sign. So, and he was the most prepared celebrity I have probably ever met. He had seven paint pens, maybe five to seven paint pens of different colors and five or six Sharpies. And he's sitting there like, oh, maybe this purple will look good. Oh, maybe this red. Well, yellow, yellow look great. He's like, it'll highlight the jacket and kind of the background. And it does. It looks amazing. You know, but yeah, he had all these pins and everything just sitting there like looking, trying to match the colors up. Yeah, he was he is super nice. And, you know, we just shot the shit and forgot to get a picture. You said you picked up a copy of Pulse. Is it the newer version of Pulse, which came out in the you know, 2012, 20, 2009? I can't remember when. I think it's like the 1980s. It's about electricity keeping you in the house and attacking you. 19. It's 1988. OK, you got the old one then. It's a horror science fiction. Well, the new one, the one I, I was curious if that's the one you got. I don't, I forget what year, but I, I think it was based off like a Japanese horror movie type thing. It had to do with electricity, but it was like portals to, you know, the realm of the dead and ghosts were coming through. And then they kind of like overtook a ghost apocalypse where they kind of like came through and overtook everything. And I don't know, it was an interesting movie. I saw it at the theater. Let's see. Here's, here's a short synopsis. An intelligent pulse of electricity moves from house to house, terrorizing occupants through their own appliances. Kind of sounds like every time we upload a new feature episode. Yeah, it's attacking people. (laughs) (laughs) I get all this stuff and I'm like, I don't feel like I spent that much, though. I mean, a couple $5 movies, a couple, you know, two records were 20 bucks. I mean, the autograph was 40, but I stood there and talked to him for probably 10, 15 minutes. So that's worth 40 bucks. I mean, Roadhouse was $5. Pulse was $5. I think people are listening to the show more because they know that I'm poor because I've been getting free stuff. Or, or stuff on the cheap, but you're talking about like Matt Harding from Severn gave you a movie and he tossed a t-shirt to me. He was almost like Oprah Winfrey. He's like, you get a movie, you get a t-shirt, you get a movie, everybody gets a movie. So Matt was really cool and just, you know, handing out some stuff to people and that was cool. So I got, I got a, a Severn shirt from Matt at the, at the Orpheum, which was nice. I spent some money on raffle tickets. So at that event, I'm sorry, what was the name of the guy who helped you put that on the strange behavior? He writes for Diabolic Magazine. Uh, Ian Higby. He's a friend of mine that lives local and he's a big uh, strange behavior nerd, dead kids nerd. So, And he brought a strange behavior poster of that was his poster that he raffled off. Right. And the proceeds... The proceeds went to the Orpheum, so that was cool. And I really wanted the poster. It was a beautiful print. And so I uh, I spent some money and got some raffle tickets for that. I didn't win. Come to find out, Brian's barber won. Yeah. And so Brian introduced me to his barber while we were there. And he's like, look, Clint, he's real. Because I was like, you know, if, if you haven't seen Brian, Brian's pretty much bald. And I'm like, what do you, you don't have a barber. What are you talking about? So it was fun talking with him. He goes, hey, I do I do the best with what I got or something. I said, you're doing a good job, sir. Seemed like a nice guy. So again, I went to see Goblin Boots and I did at the Redford Theater. And um, 
we each picked up a, a goblin shirt because you just have to, you know, you're there seeing a goblin, you got to grab a shirt. Brian got me the ultimate McReady NECA figure. And uh, he also got me the incredible melting man, Blu-ray, which I still have to pay him for. So I still use some money in that, buddy. I did not forget about you. And lastly, my second issue of creep show volume two is sitting at the comic shop. It became available October 11th. And I just haven't had time to make it down there. I'm hoping to get down there sometime this week before I head over to Kentucky. And that's pretty much it. So I haven't spent a lot either. Did pick up a few things. But listen to the show after this one because, again, I'm going to Scarefest in Kentucky, which has, and I'm not exaggerating, but I don't know the specific number, but it's like 52 or 65 celebrities. Or I mean, it's you know double digits. There are so many celebrities. And they they're still adding them. They just added... It's not in front of me, so I forget her name, but she played in Maximum Overdrive. She was the girl from the road that became Emilio, Emilio Estevez's girlfriend. She had Mother's Helper. I'm like, great, there's another autograph I got to get. So I'm going to be spending probably more than I make down there just on autographs. Uh, I was talking with Ted from Ted's Marvelous Custom Gumball Emporium. Him and I are going down there together and splitting a room and all that stuff, splitting costs. And we were discussing all the money that we know we're going to spend and trying to reeled in we actually got on an interesting side story though we were talking about that and ted brought up he goes you know who were we talking about specifically we were talking about somebody specifically and he said you know five ten years ago i got that person's autograph for 20 bucks and now it's 60 dollars. now it's 80 dollars." and i said i get rising costs and all that stuff and demand you know you charge what the what the market will bear i understand all that but it almost is like the the celebrities are pricing out the vendors and or pricing out each other because we've talked about this at length before, but a lot of times now people will go to these shows and they'll go right to the celebrities. They'll drop all their money on their autographs and then whatever little bit they have left over, they might get something from a vendor or they might say, oh, I really love this. I'd love to pick it up, but I, I got six autographs. Or what like Ted and I were talking about is there's legitimately, I think, 10 different autographs I want to get a Scarefest, but I'm going, I'm probably going to whittle that down to five just because of cost. So that means that Celebrity A is going to get my money, but B isn't because A costs, so, or they all freaking cost so much. I wish they would, uh, I don't know, just be a little more forgiving with some of their prices because we're poor. I think one of the th- hardest parts is unless you get a really awesome experience from media or a free picture a lot of these you can grab cheaper on ebay i mean unfortunately you can grab them already authenticated on ebay cheaper if you know you're gonna get somebody like a felissa rose that's gonna give you a great experience and you want her autograph then you would get her i mean i've never ran into the celebrity that's been rude to me just some give you more time than others some are more people person people than others that's just how people are i mean you're gonna run into people every day that some people are people people and some people aren't you know and so yeah if you can get some of them cheaper on ebay it's kind of like you're gonna pick and choose and maybe you get somebody that's a little more expensive but they don't do a ton of shows it's getting more difficult to go to shows and get autographs because like you said, they're just 80 to a hundred bucks, six, even 60 bucks to a normal fan is a ton of money. That's a lot of, lot of money for people. I mean, that's, you know, you figure 80 bucks, that's maybe a week of groceries for some people. That's a, that's a lot of money. I mean, and I get it. They have to make money, but go to a convention and we travel a lot. We're paying for a room. We're paying for gas to get there. We're paying for, 
you know, food when you want 80 bucks for an autograph. It's like, man, that's, you know, maybe I won't be able to do that. 80 bucks for a week's worth of groceries. Jesus Christ, where do you live? What do you guys eat? I just went grocery shopping earlier today before this recording, and I've only got two uh, teenagers in the house, and I've spent a lot more than 80 bucks. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it is, but you know, maybe it's a tank of gas to get you back and forth to work that week. Right. 80 bucks is a lot of money. 60 bucks is a lot of money. I mean, it's not a, you know, a ton of money, but for some people that's the difference between paying their car bill or their insurance or having gas, you know, maybe lunch that week. Or getting an autograph from Robert England. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you ain't getting it for 60 or 80 bucks. I mean, you're, you know, you're looking at like 120. I was at Halloween Palooza and our buddy Brian Clark had a Robert England autograph already authenticated on like an 11 by 17 or something along those lines for 50 bucks. And I almost grabbed it because I was like, that's a deal. His autographs, you know, a hundred and some bucks at a show. But I was like, where am I going to put it? It looked kind of weird in here with all the Return of the Living Dead and Joe Bob stuff. I don't know. It, yeah, it's getting difficult to go to shows and shop and get autographs and buy you know, from the vendors, because you got to support the vendors. That's who pays to bring the celebrities in and pays to for the hotel. You know, we've talked about that before, especially we were talking during the uh, early goings of the SAG strike. And we were worried about if conventions were going to continue on or not. And yeah, um, I mean, yeah, with celebrities, you can have a vendor show without celebrities, but you can't necessarily have a celebrity show without vendors. That's, you know, we talked about that at Flashback. I got five Joe Bob autographs. It was a hundred bucks. Jason got one. Was it Dick Warlock? Yeah. And it was 60. And I'm just like, I'll take my five Joe Bob autographs. I mean, he was signing stuff that I took took to his table. But still, for a hundred bucks, I'm going to get five of his autographs all day over, you know, probably about anybody. For me, I'm just a big Joe Bob fan, but that's five autographs. I donated a couple. I didn't keep them all. I was going to say, yeah, and some of that, because they were more affordable, you were able to get multiple items and then have them raffled off at Halloween of Palooza, um, you know, in, in Andy's memory or for his surviving family, right? So that's really cool. If it was, if Joe Bob was charging 60 bucks, 80 bucks, 120 bucks, you might have only got one thing. Yeah, yeah. I would have got one thing to raffle and one thing for myself. You know, I ended up getting what the gumball machine and a, you know, one of the cartridges from bootleg as fuck toys. And then I got another, a shadow box for myself. And then I got two, those two autographs and got them authenticated for what J I got those for 60 bucks autographs and authenticated, which is what Dick Warlock was. I mean, nothing. I mean, he was an older guy and he, he looked pretty tired by the end of the weekend. Oh, and Dick was an absolute sweetheart, which I don't know if you, I don't know if you sh should say that about an old man named Dick Warlock. He was a sweetheart. How about a badass? Dick Warlock was a badass. Yeah, it's better. That's what you pay for. I mean, you have an experience now that you'd be like, yeah, I met him and he was a fucking badass. If you go up to some people, you get an autograph and then it's next. You know, you're just cattled along. Unfortunately, because the prices are still high, I, I know I'm going to be shelling out a lot of money at Scarefest. So, uh, I don't know. We should probably take it to a sponsor. I like it spooky. Hey, everybody. 
Clinton here from the I Like It Spooky podcast. If you have listened before, then you know this is when we showcase a commercial for the sponsor of an episode. We decided to take this spot today to let you know if you have interest in sponsoring an episode, all you have to do is send your name, business, and contact info to ilikeitspookypod at gmail.com. We will then get back to you with trade, rate, and fee info. And a contract written in blood. So this is a horror news, reviews, and entertainment show, but you do not have to be genre-related to advertise to our audience. You could be looking to get the word out on an event. We're trying to reach the masses and let them know about casting calls for your next production. Hell, you could be wanting to fill a dispatch position at your local hospital. Come in, dispatch. Stand more. Maybe you own a coffee shop or want to let people know about your Indiegogo or Kickstarter campaign. Maybe you are the actress who played the waitress in Maximum Overdrive and you're looking for work. Hell, I don't know. Maybe you want to let the world know about your new escort service. Hey, Clint. Yeah, I don't think we can do that one. So remember, if you want to be a featured sponsor of one of the fastest growing podcasts around, send your info to ilikeitspookypod at gmail.com. So now that we've heard for our sponsor, it's time for the movie. This episode, in celebration of Halloween, we're covering Clint's favorite Halloween film, Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. I don't know why this is my favorite Halloween, and I'll tell you why. So your diehards know there's two different cuts of this. I have always watched the theatrical cut. This time I watched the producer's cut and it was different enough to where I didn't enjoy it. And I don't know if it's because I was so tired. Again, um, went and saw Goblin, drove home, went to sleep, got up, drove six hours to Galesburg, hung out there for the show, went to bed, got up, drove six hours home, You know, got the house back in order when I got home, popped this movie in. So I was kind of tired and not a bad mood, but I was just kind of like, eh, anyway. But I did not enjoy this movie as much as I remember enjoying it. And I, maybe it's because I watched the producer's cut. But I will, so I actually, I'm going to say a lot of bad things about this movie, but I'm going to start the bad things with this. It had a really weak intro title sequence. All of the Halloweens are known for some really cool, you know, the the pumpkins, you know, coming apart or just whatever, just different stuff. And this was just orange lettering and it just said Halloween 6. Michael Myers. So I know one difference between this one. I watched their producer's cut too because I was like, I was looking online and to see which one people like more. And most people went with the producer's cut. They said the theatrical version has enough of the story missing that it's really garbled and you don't really understand what's going on. And the producer's cut has more of the story, so it's more understandable. But the theatrical version has more blood and guts, more gore. So you're like, well, damn it, which one do I want? I don't, I don't know if you remember the story, 
But back in March, I went to uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And I'll kind of bam what the story, but their Halloween fan came along. He saw that I had uh, the cops do it by the book shirt. And so we started talking about Halloween. He's like, part four is my favorite. I said, I'm kind of a part six guy. And he's like, you exist just to piss everybody off, don't you? And it was all in good fun because most people don't like Halloween six. So I'm actually going to like go a step below that because I like the theatrical version and think it's a better story more than the producer's cut. So now I'm going to piss off even more people. Yes, we have gone from Massachusetts back to Haddonfield, but now Haddonfield's in Salt Lake City, Utah, and with mountains in the background. Yes, it's controversial, just like our Munsters episode, and just like the Halloween Ends episode. I like the theatrical cut of Halloween 6 better. So I don't know what kind of trivia you had, but you said it was shot in Salt Lake City, Utah. There's, If you pay real close attention, you can see some mountains in the background. And it was the only Halloween movie that was shot in the fall, I read somewhere. Like most of them were shot in the summer, maybe? In spring? They were, and uh, I did. So I say this a lot in the episodes, but if you go to the Internet Movie Database, there's just this is another one of those movies where there's pages and pages and pages of trivia and fun facts. Um, so I pulled a few, but one of the, I did see something about that, and they said it was actually they had a hard time because it was like early winter there. I think it was kind of like late fall and early winter there, so the snow hadn't hit, but it was extremely cold, so they had a hard time doing a lot of the shots. I shouldn't say hard time. It was uncomfortable for a lot of people. I wonder if this is going to appear on a, what's that show? Cursed Films on Shudder. This will be one of the movies they cover eventually. Well, that's actually kind of one of the fun facts jumping ahead of my notes here. And that was supposedly the reason this got titled The Curse of Michael Myers was because there was so many problems between the producers and the editors and the writers and just the production crew. No one got along. Everybody was arguing. They had problems with scenes. Of course, this is Donald Pleasant's last movie. You know, he passed away before this movie even came out. So they just said, you know what? This, this set is cursed. This film is cursed. We're going to call it The Curse of Michael Myers. Sure, I'll go with a little synopsis for you. This installment marks the return of the seemingly indestructible mass murderer, Michael Myers, who is targeting Tommy Doyle, a young man tied into the legacy of the killer and his connections with the Strode family. As the supernatural elements of Michael's abilities are explored, his longtime adversary, Dr. Loomis, is also back in yet another attempt to stop the psychopath's brutal rampages. That's a better... It's a great synopsis. But, you know, most synopsis are like one or two sentence synopsis. And that that long, lengthy synopsis kind of sums up this movie is there were so many story elements. And from what I gather from my research, so many people, three different writers. You had Deborah Hill, John Carpenter, and um, Daniel Farrens. I think that's how you say his name. So you had three different writers contributing. And uh, yeah, so I mean, just the fact that it's just like lengthy synopsis tells you how confusing and muddled this story is. But, you know, we're forgetting the most important part right now. The most important part is that this is the introduction of Paul Rudd. This is Paul Rudd's first movie. It was, but it wasn't because this was his first movie, but it didn't come out until his second movie, after his second movie. So technically, the world first met Paul Rudd in Clueless with Alicia Silverstone, but this was his first movie. One of the things that I disliked the most about this movie, it had been so long since I'd seen it that I didn't remember it, was that Paul Rudd seemed like a big sissy. If you went through all that trauma as a child, don't you think you'd be a little more like, fuck Michael, I'm going to kill Michael. Like, you know what I mean? He just seemed like he was 
scared the whole movie. Not that you wouldn't be scared, but you felt I felt like he'd have more gusto or like, hey, we're going to get this guy. And he just seemed kind of off-put or weird. I mean, I know it's his first movie, but... If you watch the theatrical cut, he gets to take that aggression out on the end and he beats the living shit out of Michael with a pipe. In the producer's cut, he does not. In fact, the whole producer's cut, Michael, Paul Rudd as uh, Tommy Doyle, and even uh, Donald Pleasance as Sam Loomis, everybody in this movie, including Michael, are, are very timid. There is no aggression. There is no unstoppable force. It's so story-based. It's insane. I did find out, though, we're talking about fun facts, that the producers of the movie wanted Brian Andrews, who played Tommy Doyle in the original Halloween. They wanted him to come back, but he didn't have an agent, so they couldn't get in contact with him. And he has stated since that he regrets missing the opportunity, which I would, too, because even though the movie was pretty well ill-received, you know, that could have gotten him into other movies, or maybe it would have been him in uh, Halloween, the David Gordon Green trilogy instead of Anthony Michael Hall. Well, and they wanted uh, Daniel Harris too, but she wanted too much money, and they wanted maybe an older actress. I saw something about she wanted an additional five grand or something. And I'm like, five grand's nothing for them, right? And even back in 95. And then I saw something about she was 17, but they wanted the actress to be 18. So she emancipated herself from her parents, but it didn't work out. That's the one thing about the fun facts on the Internet Movie Database is some of them you kind of have to read between the lines. And because anybody can get on there and edit kind of like Wikipedia, but it's a little more substantial than Wikipedia. So is, you know, how true is that statement? Yeah, and it was released on uh, September 29th, 1995. It had a budget of $5 million. And then made fifteen point one million U.S. So I mean, is it successful? I mean, they three times their money on it. It was financially successful. Yeah, like you said, five million dollar budget, and it made seven point three opening weekend. And apparently, this was the largest opening for a Halloween movie until twenty eighteen came out. And like you said, currently it's like fifteen point two worldwide or something like that. I mean, I'll have to at some point watch the theatrical cut, see what the difference is. But I originally I had seen the theatrical cut because, I mean, this one hadn't. It was kind of one of those that people heard about it, but it wasn't around until 2014 when Shout Factory or Scream Factory released it in a Halloween box set. But there was always bootleg VHS floating around and DVDs floating around. And if you could get your hand on a copy, you'd watch it because you wasn't around. You heard about it. But it wasn't around. See, I remember going to see it in the theater. And I remember I enjoyed it. And one of the reasons I enjoyed it, so you brought up Daniel Harris. So if someone hasn't seen this film or they're not familiar with the Halloween franchise, four and five, part four and part five, Daniel Harris got brought in and she is Michael Myers' niece. Uh, the story goes that she is Jamie Lee Curtis's daughter and that Jamie Lee Curtis has been killed. Would she die in a car wreck? I think it was or something like that. Something I can't remember. And um, by the end of part five, there's this like mysterious black glove, almost this Italian giallo type character, the black gloves. You don't see who it is. They got the black top hat and the, the trench coat and they bust Michael out of jail. So part six is kind it, it ends that storyline. And we find out, um, and this is why a lot of people don't like it, is that it's actually the the staff at Smith's Grove Sanitarium that have made Michael this monster, their druids and this whole cult of thorn thing. And so a lot of people say they like the producer's cut because it had a more, a more coherent cult storyline. I think 
it had too much of the cult storyline. Where in the theatrical, you got just enough where you're like, oh, okay, now I understand what's going on. There's this cult. and But that's not what the story centered around. It was almost a subplot. Because at the beginning, this girl's trying to escape. One of the cult members helps her get her baby and get away from the cult. Yeah, it's it's Jamie. It's It's the Jamie character. Looks nothing like Daniel Harris. But at one point, didn't she say, maybe it was later in the movie when they had the baby again. They're like, that's your baby, Michael. We know it is. That's the difference, too, between the producer's cut and the theatrical. The theatrical, you just kind of, okay, Jamie got pregnant, so Michael wants to kill her and the baby because he needs to end his bloodline. But in, in the producers, it was incest. So they made Michael have sex with Jamie to have another, another Myers. The thing is, if Michael kills all of his family, then... His powers are passed to another child at some point so that the cult can continue on. Right. So why make more Myers babies for more? If, if that's the case, that was a part of the cult story in the producer's cut. I just rejected. Why the hell are you going to force him to have a baby then? If he just kills Jamie, that's the end of the bloodline. And then that can happen. So it was funny. There's a lot of like a lot of stuff, a lot of little scenarios in the movie that just drove me nuts and one was the cult member nurse who helped jamie escape at the beginning of the movie she, you know they're in these like underground tunnels in the basement of the sanitarium or whatever she uh helps jamie escape and then runs back into the complex and then she start, you know jamie's gone and it focuses on that nurse and she starts hearing noises and stuff like that and she's getting scared and she call, starts calling out for jamie like in any horror movie you know like brian is that you is somebody there? But why would you scream and call for the woman you wanted to secretly help escape that you just help escape? Well, and the kill was picks her up and pushes her through a spike. I figured that would be long enough to come through or cause her mouth to bleed. It was just nothing. You didn't see any gore or nothing. I was, they missed the boat on that one. Yeah, that could have been a great come through her eye or the mask was weird. There was something that happened with the mask that they were damaged. So only had two masks, but I was like, God, couldn't you have done something with that? That looked awful. So first where he, where he impales her on the spike, I liked the kill. And I agree though, that I was like, this anatomically doesn't seem correct. They could have taken this further and, and given us a little more gore and made it even more, a little more realistic. This is a stupid hang up. And maybe I'm the only person in the world that feels this way. It's, it has no bearing on the story, but I wish they would have waited throughout this whole intro where she's, the nurse is helping Jamie escape the Halloween theme music, John Carpenter's music's playing. And I just thought it would have been a lot cooler if it was just suspenseful music and then when Michael appears out of the shadows to kill the nurse, that's when the Halloween themed hit. What you said there kind of makes me jump ahead of my notes again. But so basically, it's like this movie has Michael Myers in it. If you I hired or um, ordered Michael Myers from Wish, the mask was terrible. Sorry, I'm not trying to knock the actor, but you could the actor didn't move like Michael. You could tell. So you're almost wondering, is this purposely a fake Michael? Is this not supposed to be real? It was it was just terrible. Just terrible. You get a lot of Michael's hand. His burnt hand. Did you notice that? Oh, yeah. A lot a lot of the hand. So Jamie gets away. She goes to Haddonfield. She makes a phone call to the radio station. Paul Rudd hears it. And Donald Pleasance, I think, maybe hears it. And the radio jo jockey says, you're nuts. She goes to a barn. She's trying to hide her baby. 
or she goes to the bus stop. I don't even remember. She goes to the bus station. Yeah, we find out that she hid the baby at the bus stop before she took off to the barn. She goes to the barn. Michael finds her and kills her. She wasn't even dri- she wasn't driving to a barn. She was just driving away, and then the uh, the cult members show up and hit her, hit the truck into the barn. You know, he kills her. Really weak kill. Or she was was she alive? Oh, she was alive. He didn't even kill her. Well, so again, this is this was the difference between the producer's cut and the theatrical. In the theatrical, he kills her. She's dead. End of story. In the producer's, he kills her, but she's still alive. Then later on, she's at the hospital. And then the lead cult member guy goes and with a silencer at his pistol and shoots her in the head. What the? Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? But they leave the big, you know, they leave the big thorn thing burned into the, the hay bales. The sheriff is like, no, you don't need to be here to Donald Pleasance and whoever the other guy was that was with him. And uh, I was like, what? you don't fucking think something's weird here? You know, you got a half dead girl and a big ass burned in cult symbol. And you're like, nah, you, we don't need you guys. You're good. Nothing, no, nothing to see here. Well, and Donald Pleasance, the Sam Lewis, Loomis character, even called him out on that. He had like the perfect comeback. He was like, what do you mean you don't want me to stir up ghosts? Is it a ghost that killed that girl? Is it a ghost that burnt this cult of thorn symbol on the thing? What do you think's going on here? You know, what was weird, almost as weird as the de-evolution of Michael Myers mask, which we just kind of talked about, was how Michael and or the cult members, after they killed whichever cut you watch, after they wounded or killed the, the, the Jamie character, or not Jamie, yeah, Jamie character, right? How they could not go back to the bus stop and find the baby was amazing because Paul Rudd's Tommy Doyle goes there, just kind of looks around and sees a trail of blood and follows it, goes into a room and hears a baby crying in a cabinet. And I'm just like, come on, they, they couldn't have found the baby. And he takes the baby to the hospital, runs into Dr. Loomis, who does not remember him. Well, you spent like two or three years of your life with this kid in these movies, right? You don't remember him? Brian, I just wanted to let you know the whole reason that the uh, Tommy Doyle character figured out to go to the bus stop was, remember, he recorded her. He had all, like, the reel-to-reel recording equipment. I just wanted to let you know that when I'm putting together the audio segments for Spill the Guts, that's what I look like. I'm walking around the room with my hand on my chin listening to -to reel-to-reel tape over and over going, um, yeah, that'll work, okay. You have all the articles, too? With pens and stuff going, I don't think he had pens, but he had like every article ever from every Halloween. I got enough like post-it notes to remind myself shit around here. It kind of looks like it, yeah. So let's get into some more weirdness. And uh, this all goes on, and then we meet the Strodes, who have moved themselves into the Myers house. I'll just kind of fast forward without getting into the whole dynamic. We could talk forever about the family. Dad's a jerk. The oldest daughter moves back, has an illegitimate son. There's a college-age brother who lives in the house also. Mom tries to keep it all together, real timid. The brother and the sister wind up going to college, and they're on the campus. A picture is revealed of the older sister or the sister's son, the illegitimate son. And he's like somehow like drawn to this whole cult of Thorn. Like they play up this thing throughout the movie where he might be the next Michael Myers. And the picture that the kid drew is like everybody in his family, like with knives sticking out of them and blood pouring out of them and the cult of Thorn symbol. The brother, who's this kid's uncle, looks at it and he makes this fucking Beavis and Butthead laugh. Uh, what? (laughs) Uh, no. Uh, the fuck? <laughs> yeah, me. And then he just says he thinks that's cool. And I'm like, you just saw that your nephew drew a picture of you murdered, and you just butt head laugh and think it's cool, and then just go to class. It was what the fuck? Poor writing, poor execution. 
Well, and he kept hearing the voices. I said to Tiffany, I was like, what the fuck is going on here? And she's like, well, don't you remember the part where they said Michael started hearing voices when he was about that kid's age? And I was like, I fucking missed that. I mean, I seen the girl get slapped. I seen the little boy holding the knife to his grandpa's nuts, you know, like going to stab him. And then I was like, no, I missed that part. Like you've said several times, there's way too much going on. I was like, I after the, she said it, I kind of was like, oh, OK. And he keeps hearing the voice through the whole movie. But it's the it's the guy that's the leader of the cult. I don't know. Would it be his voice? I don't know how cults work. It, it was him calling him, but you can never, it was almost like a psychological horror thriller at that point where it's like, is this a dream sequence? Is it really happening? And then there was no payoff for that subplot. There was no payoff. It just kind of existed and then it just went away. Uh, so again, in my, in my mind, poor writing, poor execution or too many writers tackling the same thing. Like a weird, almost love story in there somewhere where Tommy's fallen for the girl with the illegitimate child that's the next Michael and Tommy has this baby and they kind of have this romance kind of never goes anywhere either. Jumping ahead and I'll go back to a couple other points, but that's something I wrote down too. So when she gets home from college that day, she gets home from school, her son's already home from school and she finds out that Tommy Doyle's in her son's bedroom and they're just talking, oh, he likes dinosaurs, meet my new friend. She's already, she knows he's weird. She knows he lives across the street. He was, he had the telescope and he's like peeping Tom through her window, watching her undress earlier in the movie. And she's shocked and like, what are you doing here? Get away from my son. And then he just kind of looks at her and says, I'm here because you're in danger. And then as quick as it went from day to night, did you notice that all of a sudden a light got switched and it was dark outside? She goes with him to his house and locks himself herself in his apartment. It was so, like jumping conflict. It was so weird. I think in between that period, her her parents are killed. Is that right? Her mom and dad are both killed. The, the mom. Michael had come to the house and killed the mom. Her poor laundry that she washed, you know, got all bloody. I thought for sure he was going to stuff her in the in the washing machine. I was hoping like her head would pop up or something when the dad lifted the lid. That was a way too long, suspenseful sequence to get a bloody shirt out of it. Another kill that got fucking wasted. He picks the dad up, pushes him against the fuse box and stabs him. And I'm like waiting for like him to start smoking or Michael to start shaking, electricity to start coming, you know, because he stabs him through the fucking electrical box. But Michael's just like standing there and Tiffany's like, wasn't he in water? Like, wouldn't that like generate more electricity? I was like, maybe it's his rubber boots. I don't fucking know. I was like, right. Yeah, I need more. Like, come on. That was yet another, and again, that's why when I watch this again, and all I, I noticed all those little plot holes or little things that just didn't add up or make sense. First of all, the, the house had no electricity, so how the hell was the washer still going? And the dad even says that in part of his dialogue. He's like, how is the washer still going? You know that the mom's head is in there because it's bump, 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 and it's all tilting and shaking around. And then, yeah, so he shoves the dad against the electrical box, stabs him with the electrical wire, and he does electrocute him. How did Michael not get electrocuted? I did find out that the dad is kind of like Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. The dad's head was supposed to explode, and it, it didn't work out somehow or something, and so they just moved on scrapped it god damn next to ken the guy's head exploded when we you know next at the end of the next skin that was the best part of the movie i didn't dislike that movie but it was slow and i was tired and i almost fell asleep and then at the end she leveled that shotgun off and it was just boom oh wow look at that i was waiting for the jeep to or the truck to blow up and she blew his fucking head off i was like okay that was worth waiting for that was fun 
They, that movie made more sense than this movie. This could have been a really good movie. And I've seen worse. I don't hate this movie. Again, I, I am saying a lot of, I'm talking a lot of shit about it and I've got some more to say, but I, I still, I've seen worse, but I, I think this movie had so much more potential and it just, the ball just got dropped. Like you said, the, the whole story, you get like a two or three, maybe even five minutes of Paul Rudd explaining the cold of Thorn and Michael comes back. Every year when the, you know, the stars line up, right, he comes back to Haddonfield. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? Because, you know, this is six years after the movie before it. So he's like, and he came back this year when the, what do they call them damn things? In the sky. You like the, the constellation. Yeah, the constellations in the sky. Every year it's over Haddonfield. He comes back. And I'm like, what is this fucking Jeepers Creepers? What is this? Like. I think that's one of the reasons that the, a lot of, especially diehard Halloween fans, did not dig this movie. And the reason that in other movies, they haven't liked it. Because anytime they try to give Michael a backstory, that wasn't the intended purpose of that, you know, of Michael Myers. He's just supposed to be this unstoppable force of evil that you cannot relate to. That was John Carpenter's original vision. And anytime someone tries to give him some crazy backstory, people get pissed. And that's, again, why I liked the theatrical cut better because, and we'll get to the ending here in a little bit, but the theatrical cut at the end, in my opinion, enough of the cult stuff was in there where it made the last couple movies got explained, but it allowed Michael to still be Michael at the end. But there's still so many weird little hangups in this movie I got to get to. Uh, back at the Strode house, did you catch at the top of the stairs where it was like the black trench coat and the black fedora was hanging at the end of the hallway? Uh-uh. If you ever go back and watch this movie, when the, the daughter gets home and she comes upstairs and the, the mom, before the mom got killed and she's walking through the house, it's at the end of the hallway. It was a, like a false scare, but you would think after like the third or fourth time that the doctor would be standing there and grab somebody or something because that was what he wore. So the, uh, kind of a, a missed opportunity there. This was something dumb. Did you notice that? Uh, I think it was when the mom was walking through the house. I can't remember. They had done dishes and like they had like 17 different kitchen knives drying in the drying rack and all the knives were fucking pointing up. Who dries their knives like that? You trip and fall, you're going to kill yourself. They did have some, I wouldn't say great lines, but at one point the mom's like talking to the dad, you know, the strode parents are talking and she says, uh, your brother died in this house and you know, you can't sell it. So you fucking moved us in here. <laughs> like what the fuck? Is that what it was? His brother was Jamie Lee Curtis's adopted dad. Is that what it was? Something, it was something along those lines. But she's like, you knew you couldn't sell this house because he's a realtor. So he just moved his family in there so they could get slaughtered. Yeah, I knew they were Strodes, but I couldn't figure out how they were connected. So maybe there was something said that I missed. Speaking of weird... You threw this trivia before at, at our ex-co-host Jason, but in Tommy Doyle's apartment, Divine is on the fridge. The picture, that's where the picture of Divine is. Old John Water. It was a cool little nod, but it's like, why does he have Divine on his fridge? He doesn't seem like a Divine lover. His character, anyway. I mean, he just, yeah, doesn't seem like somebody that'd like Divine. I mean, everybody, maybe everybody likes Divine. I just don't know it. I like Divine just fine. You were talking about the dad. I said earlier that I think this movie is kind of like the poor man's Michael Myers. Check this out. This movie, in my opinion, was like full of poor man's actors. I think the dad was a poor man's John Goodman. I think that um, 
the daughter was actually a poor man's Jamie Lee Curtis. I think she physically resembled Jamie Lee Curtis. Like they were trying to bring that vibe back and sort of acted like her to a degree. This is dumb, but I think the brother was a poor man, Ski Ulrich. I just, I was listening to him talk and I'm watching him and I'm like, he could be like Ski Ulrich's like stunt double. And then of course, like I say, it was a poor man's Michael Meyer. How far are we even into the movie? Are we close to the end where they kidnap and take him back? They reveal who the leader of the cult is and all that shit. Almost. We're, we're kind of at the part of the movie where Michael Myers somehow actually embodies Jason Voorhees. And he is like taking on the ability to be able to morph from spot to spot because he like kills someone at the house. And then he kills the radio DJ at the party downtown at the square. And then he like 10 seconds later kills someone back at the house. They explained it like, oh, it's only a half mile away. Well, I mean, a half mile on foot that's still a little trek so i thought that was a, a, another muddle in the story michael just seems to be everywhere at once that's where the portals come in right it could be and that's what i say is i want to listen to that podcast that i talked about earlier in the news because how much of that story bled into this i need a portal to get the fuck away from this movie <laughs> <laughs> that's funny I, like I said, I enjoyed the uh, original ending over the producer's cut. Uh, like you say, they all get kidnapped. You find out that the old lady across the street is a member of the cult, and they take them back to Smith's Grove Sanitarium. Depending on which cut you watch, though, in the one cut, they were going to transfer the evil over to Dr. Loomis. And in the theatrical cut, they were just trying to transfer the power over to her son the young the young boy all i know is the original ending allowed for like a more uncontrollable pure evil michael that we've kind of all come to know they kind of let him out to play because in the theatrical he flips out and just massacres everybody in the cult i don't know if you remember the ending of that you can go on youtube and watch like the six minute that's what i did because i was like i don't have time to watch both movies something goes on during like the power transfer ceremony michael wigs out says fuck all y'all and just kills everybody on a rampage it was very testosterone filled but if you watch the producer's cut it's very timid he chases tommy doyle down a hallway and tommy doyle has this bag of rocks that are ruins and places them in a circle around him and he just stands there and doesn't move the theatrical cuts better like a dungeons and dragons he like rolls them out he's like if i roll these dice he'll stop if I get enough points and he just stops and stands there, cult leader shows up and it kind of cuts to where you don't see what happens. And then Dr. Loomis shows up and he's like, it's over, Michael. It's over. And then he pulls the mask off and it's the cult leader. And Michael Myers walking away in the boots and everything. He's walking. You hear the boots clicking. Yeah, that's when he like holds his arm up and he's got the tattoo and he's screaming. I was like, what the fuck's going on here? It made absolutely no sense. So Michael's standing there because Tommy used these rocks that the ruins worked and it just like in the producer's cut and it just made Michael, you know, stand there like he, he couldn't do anything. And then they leave. They drive away. Dr. Loomis says, I'm staying. I have some unfinished business. He goes in. All of a sudden, Michael's laying on the floor. Like you say, he pulls the mask off, finds out that it's the cult leader. Because the cult leader even came up before that real quick. And he's like, what did they do to you, Michael? Oh, my gosh, what did they do? It was just, what the fuck is all of this going on? It's so weak and lame. Um, yeah, so Sam Loomis comes in, takes the mask off. Michael somehow pulled the old okey-doke and escaped the ruins. I don't fucking know. Puts on the black fedora and the black trench coat. 
has no mask on, turns around in the shadows and like show him opening the gate and getting ready to leave. And then, yeah, all of a sudden the cult of Thorn thing supernaturally appears on Dr. Loomis's wrist and he screams, no, no. And that's the end of the movie. And I'm sitting there going, what the fuck did I just watch? This is not what I remember. But again, with the theatrical cut, Michael goes on that rampage and his rampage is to kill the baby. So it's okay. That uncontrollable force to kill the his family is there. And in that ending, which is the better ending, in my opinion, they he chases Paul Rudd and the daughter and the kid and the baby throughout the hospital. And I'm a sucker for psych wards and industrial basements and tunnels and stuff. So I think it's one of the reasons I always like this. Chases him into a room. There's a fight sequence. They inject Michael full of uh, the serum. They escape. And Tommy Jarvis, gra- or I said Tommy Jarvis, I'm sorry, Tommy Doyle, grabs a sled pipe and like looks at Michael. And he sheds that timidness that you were talking about earlier, Brian, and just beats the fucking shit out of Michael, who's been doped up. Then they leave. Loomis says, I'm going to stay behind. Loomis goes back into the hospital and then you just hear him scream. You hear Dr. Loomis scream and you don't know why. And I love that because that was the end of the movie and it left it up to you to make your make your mind up. Did Michael escape? Did Michael kill him? It was a more interesting concept. Like you said, it's the end where he screams. Does he scream? Did Michael kill him? Is Michael not there? Or is he screaming just out of sheer, it's finally over? You don't know, because you don't know if there's going to be another movie. They leave it open. But is it, it's finally over. Michael's finally dead. Who knows? Yeah, that did, that ending sounds a lot better than the fucking old switcheroo. He got that guy's clothes off quick. I highly recommend the theatrical over the producer's cut. It's, it's uh, Again, the producer's got more of the cult storyline, which is what muddled this up. Also, one of the reasons that in the theatrical, we just hear him scream and it's left, we hear Donald Pleasant's Sam Loomis scream, was because the producer's cut is what first got sent out to test audiences. And it did not get good reviews. And so they threw that out and decided we're going to reshoot a different ending. In that time, Donald Pleasant's passed away. So they just lifted the audio. It was like eight months after the movie came out or after he passed, the movie came out. So I mean, there's a nice chunk of time in between you know, him passing and the movie coming out. He's better off dead than having to watch this. Fuck, <laughs> Poor Donald. Rest in peace. But God, that is kind of a shame that that's, that was the end of his legacy. It's almost kind of like we were talking last episode about Bela Lugosi. And, you know, his last movie was, you know, parts of Plan 9 from Outer Space. But I don't know. I, I have to say that, I mean, although I enjoyed this movie less, and perhaps it's because it's the first time I saw the producer's cut, um, which is heavier on the Cult of Thorn story angle than the theatrical. And plus there's more gore in the producers. Maybe it's because I was tired. Maybe it's because when I finished the movie, I felt I just got done watching a Halloween movie if it was made for and by like the sci-fi channel. <laughs> you know, I just did not enjoy this as much as I remember it's a classic example of too many captains trying to run a ship, you know. Apparently, the production was plagued, like I said, with arguments and direction in the film and bad test screenings. And the story goes, this is why it was titled The Curse of Michael Myers. The origin of Michael Myers? It was 666, the origin of Michael Myers. You don't even really get the origin of them, though. You just get all this cult shit. It's still not what? They just had a cult that's been going on for you know the last 60 years, and they curse people and... They become killing machines, and then they need to pass it on. So who was Michael Myers before 1978? Was the cold around before that? Well, you know, recently on Spill the Guts, 
I covered the news that broke that Miramax has got the rights for TV, for Halloween TV franchise. Maybe we'll get to explore some of that. Because again, this movie has some interesting story elements. Um, and it was it served its purpose as ending the timeline of, you know, Jamie Lloyd and four or five and, you know, six ended that storyline. But who knows where they can go and what they can explore. You know, the Druids were brought up in part three, which had nothing to do with Michael Myers. Is that why they pulled some of this in? You could go so many different directions with the story. You could go, he's a robot. You know, like, isn't that what three is? That he would be a silver shamrock robot and he'd be indestructible because he's not really indestructible. But if you kill this one, we can just make another one and let it go out and start killing people. Which I want to see. But ultimately, I think everybody will agree that as far as the Michael Michael Myers character, any Halloween movie rendition, remake, whatever they do, just leave him alone. Fuck the backstory. He's an unstoppable killing force. And, you know, we'd covered uh, Silent Rage. I saw a poster. Somebody had a poster for Silent Rage at Halloween Palooza. But I know that has nothing to do with Halloween. Absolutely nothing. But it it was similar, though. But that makes fucking sense. It makes sense that if he's injected with this that makes him heal fast and indestructible that makes total sense if of any of the stories i mean a robot makes sense but you know it's the the cult thing makes no fucking sense but that you know the silent rage makes sense that could be something that is logical especially nowadays just leave him the hell alone give me some other stories of haddonfield you know start pulling in some other you know legends and lore all, there's all of these stories from around the country of this cursed road and this and that. And, you know, you could do fun with it like a what trick or treat, you know, the Sam anthology. You know, they had the bus and they had the werewolves and that, something like along those lines. Give me stories of Haddonfield. And we've talked about that in the past, how that much fun that would be if it's done properly. You know, if it's not this just a cra- cash grab to get people to watch it, if they actually put some time and effort and r- get good writers. Well, all I know is before we put six bullets into this thing and give it a rating. I shot him six times. What? I shot him six times. I, I shot him in the heart. That- can't have gotten very far. Come on. I shot him six times. Yeah. This guy, this man, is, he's not human. I don't think they shot him at all, this movie. God damn it. Something hit me when I finished watching this movie, and I started going, now I get why people complain. I know more people like the producer's cut. I like the theatrical cut better. And I just started thinking, I was like, you know how we talk about how nowadays anything that comes out, everybody is so critical of? It hit me. This whole franchise has been plagued with everybody hating, a majority of people hating something about it. People were up in arms about two. People were up in arms about three. There's a lot of people who don't like four and five, myself included. And as much as I don't like, I realize that I don't like about six. I enjoy six better than four and five because I was bored with four and five. They were just boring. And then, of course, you get into Buster Rhyme. This whole, and then people didn't like H2O because of the fake ending. Then, of course, the, the Rob Zombie ones and then the David Gordon Green ones. I mean, this franchise is plagued with controversy and just it can't make everybody happy. So I know you talk a lot about how you don't like the first one because it's slow and boring. The first Halloween, and I like the second one a little bit better also, but I consider them the same movie. I, it's almost like they should have just left it alone after that. And they had such cultural impact and it plays an AMC Fear Fest every year and everybody loves it. And that's how they identify with the Michael Myers character. I wish they would just leave it alone. Although I'm interested to see what Miramax does with the TV stuff. 
I wish they wouldn't just just leave it alone, let them go, because all it's going to do is create more controversy. But like Eric Bischoff always said, controversy creates cash. Yeah, there's money to be made. They're, they're going to keep making them Friday 13th. I mean, I feel like that even as you get deeper into it, people hate five because it's the fake ending. People hate six because it's zombie Jason. People hate what eight because they it's Jason goes to New York, but three fourths of the movies on a boat, not even in New York. You know, people hate Jason X because he's in space. People hate the remake. I feel like all of these, a lot of the slasher films that we grew up with, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, people hate two. I mean, most people I know like three. Three is maybe, you know, the one that, you know, people all love or the majority of people love. But, you know, you get deeper into that one and people are like, well, Freddy's not, he was too funny. Hellraiser, the same thing. There's a couple that people don't like. Phantasm, there's a couple people don't like that. So I feel like it's that 80s thing where you get to a certain point and people are going to not like it. Maybe the story's too weak or it's too old or they fall back on the original or the first one or second one that they really love. So they're like, well, I like that one, but I hate all the rest. I just think it's been too damn long since we've had a different holiday movie. And that's why I'm excited for Eli Ross Thanksgiving that'll be coming out shortly after this episode releases. And again, I'm not an Eli Roth fan, but I am excited to see this movie. Yeah, if he does it right, it'll be fun. Yeah, we don't have enough Thanksgiving stuff. No, we don't. What about a rating? What do you think about giving a, what what would you rate Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers? I was pretty bored and confused with it. You weren't maybe confused, but you sound like you were bored with it. And it was just too muddled and not enough good kills. They missed a lot of stuff that they could have done with it. Um, The tree kill was kind of cool with the get you know the the dj that was kind of cool the little girl underneath it it's raining red why is it warm i started at a six but then the more we've talked about it i went backwards usually when we talk about a movie i go forward you know i bump it up a point or two this one i've gone backwards and i dropped it down to a five that's average i guess but that's maybe one of my lower ratings of any movie other than demoniacs (laughs) (laughs) that had you know a stunning looking women women in it and some cool background. They only had one set of boobies in this movie. And most of the time it was like, move out of the way candle. The candle was like, <laughs> right. I was like, how, how fucking you have to be a pretty good cameraman to do that. I gave it a five thorn tattoos out of 10. Yeah. I won't not be going to get in a thorn tattoo after this movie or ever. That'd be kind of cool. Maybe. I mean, it would, but yeah, you know what? So, uh, X, uh, co-host Jason is going to come down to Scarefest where I'll be at vending and they have tattoo artists there. Maybe I'll talk him in him and I'll get matching thorn tattoos. Then I'll, I won't be in the cult though. You'll be in the cult. You're the, you're the cult leader. Oh shit. So I don't have to have a tattoo. How does that work? No, but you have to wear cowboy <laughs> boots with chrome, chrome tips and chrome spurs. The jingle, the whole fucking movie. I'm like, okay, we get it. And talk like Dr. Claw from Inspector Gadget. <laughs> I get the the thing on the boots when you ride a horse, but he's just walking around fucking town. What does he need him for? It was a cool look and a cool silhouette, and they were establishing him as like the lead villain, but it had nothing to do with druids. You know, there I don't think there were any druid cowboys. So I don't know. Uh, I'm almost right along there with you. Again, I, I remember enjoying this movie more. I will never revisit the producer's cut. Uh, if and when I watch this again, it will be the theatrical cut. I did enjoy this more than four and five, although four and five had a little more coherent story. Of course, they planted the seeds for the story in six, uh, but they were slow and boring. This 
had a little more pizzazz to it, especially the theatrical cut. I'll say that another 10 times. If this was a theatrical cut, I would give it six out of 10 Michael Myers ordered on Wish. And as far as the producer's cut, I'm going to go a four out of 10 knockoff Michael Myers. Wow. That's one of your lower ones too, outside of Demoniacs, which I think, what'd you give like like a two? It was going to be two. And then I think Brian Clark talked me up to like a 3.5. Yeah, in my mind, like I say, five is middle of the road where it's like, I've seen this movie, I enjoy it. I'm not obsessed with it. If it's on or I have some free time, I'm like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch that again. Uh, anything below that, there has to be a reason that I watch it again. Again, the theatrical version, if I if we get done recording and I go turn on AMC and it's on, I'll be like, hey, I'll leave this on while I do the dishes. Or So is the theatrical version your favorite of the Halloween films? I said that, and then I was like, maybe it's not his favorite. He just talks about it a lot because you love to bust people's balls. That's kind of why I just like being a jerk when a passive aggressive jerk when I can just to mess with people. But and I do enjoy six more than four or five. It's my favorite from that part of the timeline. One and two are my favorites, and again, I, I consider them the same movie. I like two a little bit more uh, than one. One is iconic. Two has a little more pizzazz, and three is actually my favorite favorite. But you can't include that in a Michael Myers conversation because he wasn't involved in that. And then everything after has just been kind of a letdown. Some parts I like of Rob Zombie, some parts I don't. Some parts I like H2O, some parts I don't, et cetera, et cetera. So like I said earlier, this whole franchise is just littered with controversy and weird and bad decisions. You know what's not littered with controversy or bad decisions? What's that? Our podcast network, the PFPN. So let's hear from them. listening to the prescribed films podcast network home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment the shows on this network all have a common goal providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media the pfpn hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com thanks for listening So now that we've heard from our podcast network, it's time for a little This Day in Horror History. A date which will live in infamy. So on the days following up this episode, you get October 30th, so you get Halloween, through November 12th. And believe it or not, there was not a damn thing good that came out on October 31st. Not that anything that piqued my interest anyway. But uh, you get to November 1st in 1985, and you get Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. I know that's not a lot of people's favorite, but I enjoy it. But Clue Gallagher's in that, or Gulliger, however you say his last name, which is worth a watch. And then uh, 1991, you get The People Under the Stairs, which I enjoy. I'd love to cover that on the podcast at some point. In 2002, you get 28 Days Later. That one's a good one. Classic. Love that movie. And then November 4th, in 1928, you get The Man Who Laughs, which is a silent black and white film. I highly recommend people watch that movie. Uh, even if you're not fans of uh, silent films and black and white films, It's uh, and it's got some slow points, it's, it's worth a watch. Great story. And then in 1988, you get They Live, of course. And then uh, in 2001, 
this is probably the best. God, why can't I do the, I, the fucking name of the movie? Is so fun that I'm like, it's the best title of any movie probably we've ever talked about on this. You podcast. must really like it. You are speechless. I've never seen it that I know of. It's from 2001. I spit on your corpse. I piss on your grave. I have no fucking clue what it's about, but now I want to watch it. <laughs> I've never seen it either, but I spit on your corpse. I piss on your grave. Someone's mad about something. Is it an American film? Is it a I don't know. foreign film? Yeah, it probably stars uh, Tiffany and it co-stars Brian. He does not make it through the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, November 9th, 1984. Nightmare on Elm Street, the original. I'm in 1984 again. Silent Night, Deadly Night. We will, mark my words, we will do that episode. We will do that movie justice on this show sometime soon. Uh, 1988, Child's Play. In 1990, Child's Play 2. So, same day, two years apart for Child's Play 1 and 2. It was only two years between those? That's what it said, yeah. And then uh, November 12th in 1982, Alone in the Dark, Creep Show, and Slumber Party Massacre, the first one. I mean, it's fine. I like the second one better. And then uh, in 2004, Seed of Chucky. So, they put out Chucky movies in November a lot. Here's a big one. This is a huge one from our childhood and our time growing up. In 1954, Rhonda Shear, who hosted USA's Up, Up, All Night. All Night. Was born. Was she before or after Gilbert Godfrey? Ooh, I don't know. I can't remember. I'll have to look that up. Because Gilbert was funny to watch, too. But Rhonda was, you know, what you and I were 10, 11, 12 years old. So Because she's just, I mean, she's a huge part of our growing up and horror movies and exploitation stuff. Not that they showed a lot of that on USA Up All Night. But, I mean, you didn't miss USA Up All Night. You stayed up as late as you could. Every weekend, I never missed Up All Night. I never missed uh, the Dr. Demento Radio Hour, Dr. Demento Radio Show. So yeah, a couple, pretty good couple of weeks. I mean, there's some solid stuff in there. After Halloween, some solid stuff, maybe to, you know, keep people interested in spooky season, get them ready for a big meal at the end of the month. You have a favorite there? I mean, I have some that I like more than others, but nothing that I'm like, ooh, that, well, actually 28 days later, um, just because when that came out, it was revolutionary at the time. Not only did it shoot the zombie um, subgenre in the arm, but it also was very influential for indie filmmakers. The way that Boyle did that with all the Canon XSLs and just some of the concepts like, you know, barricading a doorway with 32 shopping carts. There was just a lot of fun things explored there. I can remember what I was doing. I remember what was going on when that came out. You do? Which I do. I was in L.A. I was shopping around screenplays. I know what was going on then, but I wonder what's going on now. So after Halloween, well, this comes out before Halloween. So, you know, we have Tree Street and we have Halloween. But after that, I don't really have anything. I mean, the movies at the Orpheum be done. Spooky season will kind of be dying down for people. Um, there's some good movies coming out in November I want to catch. I mean, the, the Thanksgiving movie is coming out. I want to catch that. It's just kind of rest, watch movies. Maybe I'll watch some of these movies I piled up around the damn house. Get ready for turkey. What about you? Yeah, so I mean, Halloween's coming up in a couple of days after this movie comes out. Come on, it's fucking Halloween. You know what I mean? Always excited about Halloween. Uh, let's see, when this episode comes out, it's a day after I dusted off my haunt gear and did a guest acting spot at a 
local haunt down the road. I've got one more show coming up in 2023, and that's going to be November 10th through the 12th. And that's Monster Mania in Pennsylvania. That's a big, uh, the, the Oaks Expo Center and just outside of Philly, which I'm actually a little nervous about going to Philly. I can't lie. Just if you listen to the news lately, it just happens to be one of the big cities that there just seems to be a lot of like uh, tension and violence and stuff happening. And I'm just like, oh man, I don't know if I want to go to Philly or not, but I'll do my famous Clint. I can tell you, but I can't tell you. Uh, I know I do this a lot. And I've explained it before. It's because I just always accept possibilities, but I am extremely close to being able to make a really big announcement, which probably I'm hoping by the next episode after this one here, when it releases, I should be able to talk about what's going on. And a matter of fact, if, if I can, I'll just say it anyway and tell you why I couldn't. So stick around for uh, an announcement about something big I got cooking. I've started planting some seeds at the Orpheum about maybe some more movies next year. I mean, that's next year, but I feel like you start planting those seeds early and kind of keep reminding them and, you know, saying, oh, you, you guys had a blast. Happy and you were laughing and people were clapping and we could do it again. Ross had a lot of fun. So Leah, it was so weird. No one wanted to sit together. Jason was sitting two rows in front of me and then I was sitting and then Leah was sitting like a row or two behind me. And then behind her, I kept hearing this guy laugh throughout both movies. It was stuff that was like kind of funny, but I'm like, wow, this guy really thinks this shit's funny. It was funny, but it wasn't that fucking funny. So I was talking with Leah afterwards and she said, yeah, that guy, you know, his laugh made me laugh because she started laughing and she's got kind of a boisterous laugh also. And come to find out it was Ross from the Orpheum there. So it sounded like he had an absolute blast. And uh, when we were leaving, he was talking to Matt from Severin. He had said something to me. He's like, you know, we're going to run out of mainstream movies to show eventually. I was like, I mean, I'm sure I could find some, you know, Severin and maybe some other friends that work for some companies that would bring some movies here. I mean, it's a beautiful theater. How well, You're going to turn that down? Excited to see what happens. I hope that uh, we can get some more stuff like that in Galesburg. It'd be fun. Hell, maybe uh, if this continues, you know, maybe they'll invite you back to the college to talk to more classes. Maybe you'll talk to a film class or an entrepreneurial class or something next. I haven't heard anything from them. (laughs) No. (laughs) No, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now that you've heard the news and why we're poor about the movie, some horror history and what we're up to, don't forget to like and subscribe to the I Like a Spooky Horror Podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Listen for Spill the Guts for your horror news. Listen to Mishmash for your Michigan haunted horror and horror adjacent happenings. Sounds like we're branching out. It seems like every episode she just gets a little further out. I love it. And she just talks everybody up. I mean, there's some events that I'm like, damn it, I need to move to Michigan. You know, we'll get some more movies coming up after this episode. We'll get the Redbox and Crackle movies streaming for november so you can watch those and enjoy your turkey i won't have turkey yet so maybe i'll be like more awake and i won't stumble over crackle and redbox redbox and crackle and the the december one's going to be rough what else i mean youtube tiktok threads there's probably be something new by the time this comes out there'll be some new social media facebook instagram and twitter and i don't know something that us old people will be like how does this work if anybody who listen, if anybody listened to the last crackle, the, the October crackle and uh, Redbox appendages episodes, you know, Brian recorded those, and then he like, you know, I I was proof listening. He's like, tell me what you think. He said, I've been sick, so I'm on prednisone, and I got some steroid. He's like, so I was just like, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, oh my god, you were all over the place. It was like listening to the micro machine, man. I think the cold of thorn got inside me. Maybe that was it. <laughs> Started to grow. Enjoy Halloween and be safe. 
Check your candy for razor blades. Don't eat any gummies. I see that a lot lately. People are like, gummies are too damn expensive. No one is giving your kid drugs. So yeah, have a safe Halloween, everybody, and take care. Bye-bye. I started this episode with two words, and I'm going to end it with two things. One is, happy fucking Halloween. If you teepee someone's house, do it correctly. Don't don't half-ass. If you're going to do it, do it right. Make it a thing of art and beauty. And two is, our next episode, you are finally, finally going to get to hear the Sylvia Kaminer interview about her film, Follow Her. So make sure you don't miss that one. Happy Halloween. Until next time. Hey, what's wrong with you, man? Show some fucking respect for the dead, will ya?